everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm your host for this episode, Taylor Rockwell. Daryl Grove is not with me. He is still in Boston, but he will return next week. When he returns, the NWSL playoffs, the NWSL semifinals, I should say, will have happened. We will know who's going to be in the final. Uh, that's because the semifinals are this weekend. Uh, first up on Sunday, October 20th on ESPN2, you've got North Carolina Courage hosting Seattle Reign FC. Then at 3.30, again on Sunday, again on ESPN2, you've got Chicago Red Stars hosting the Portland Thorns. So Meg breaks down what we should expect from those games, who some of the key performers may be. We also talk a bit about the U.S. Women's National Team coaching search. It seems like there is a very likely candidate who very likely will end up getting hired. Has not yet officially happened, but Meg talks about the latest there and what that coach might bring to the national team. So my chat with Meg is going to be part one of this episode. In part two, I talk to Jason Weintraub of the League One Fun Podcast. That is a podcast that, not surprisingly, covers USL League One. The USL League One Championship is also this weekend, Saturday evening at 7 p.m. You've got North Texas hosting the Greenville Triumph. North Texas with a million exciting young players. Greenville Triumph playing defensive and trying to uh, neutralize those young, exciting attackers. We'll see what happens. Uh, But Jason breaks down that game. He also talks a little bit about the, I should say a lot bit, about the situation with the Lansing Ignite, uh, a team that did very well this season, now got knocked out of the playoffs, and now maybe are knocked out of existence. Uh, We'll see what happens there. They could fold. They have not yet, at least not when we recorded this episode. Uh, So Jason talks a bit more about kind of what has happened there, how the situation has gone the way it has, and what may end up happening. So lots of great content here from uh, a couple different leagues and a couple different areas of U.S. soccer. Uh, Hopefully you enjoy. Uh, With all of that introduced, I will turn it over to me chatting with Meg Linehan. Meg, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me one more time. Yeah. Uh, so I did want to start with the national team. Uh, Rain FC head coach <laughs> Vlatko Andonovsky was reportedly 100% getting the U.S. women's national team job earlier in the week. Then it was reported there was no final decision. So I'm kind of dropped that percentage to about 75%. Uh, does that math sound about right to you? Or are you thinking the likelihood is, in fact, closer to 100% that he's the next coach? I feel like we should be in the 90s at this point. Right. I actually talked with him for an article this week, and you know, I, I was kind of clear, like, listen, I'm here to talk about NWSL playoffs, but obviously, like, I have to bring this up. And then the way that he approached it was really like, it's you know, like I've, I've seen all these reports and the people saying Blanco is the next head coach, like it's not true. And I was like, so it's not true. Like you're not taking the job, or you got interviewed and it, it didn't get an offer, or it's not true as in not at this time, not true. And he's like, not at this time. It's not true. There we go. <laughs> so to me, yeah, like there is a very important distinction of like, cause he, he really does like want to push it aside right at the moment. But like at the same time, I, I think that it really just is a matter of timing. It really sounds like they've got their person. And unless something goes really sideways that it is kind of only a matter of time, but at the same time, like it is us soccer, something something could happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think we're at a hundred percent probability at this point, but you know, all signs point to he's going to be the next head coach of the U S national team. It's just a matter of when. And at this time, that's not the case. At this time. A key point there. We'll see what happens uh, after this weekend. Uh, but we have talked about uh, Andonovsky before, you and I. Uh, since it's seeming like it might be him, can we go back and look at, like, what can you tell listeners about him, his style, and how you think he might do as head coach of the national team? Yeah, I mean, I think that he's a really interesting pick simply because, you know, I, I've read a lot of interviews with him. I've talked to him a lot. Obviously, he's been around since early days of the league, and, you know, he came from a a background that I think confused a lot of people just being, you know, men's indoor soccer and then to bring him in to the national team, but, or into the, into the end of his cell on, on the way to the national team. I think he's like a very strong defensive coach. Like his teams very much have a, a strong backbone. And I think this season his hand has been forced a lot. That was one of the things that we've talked about this week is the number of challenges he's had to overcome as a head coach in terms of just injuries and international appearances, like this season was kind of a disaster. And I think it's forced his hands in terms of style of play, but you know, he's got this philosophy and he spelled it out in a, in a 2017 interview with 442, where he was like, our team is always made up of warriors and artists. And we have maybe one or two artists for FC Kansas city. It was Lauren holiday. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's like, basically we enable that player 
to whatever they want to create on the ball, they, they do it. Everyone else around that player is a warrior. And that's how our team kind of functions as a unit. And he still is working by that philosophy. And, you know, this year, the artist would have been Megan Rapino had she been around more. And then also when Jess Fishlock was coming back, she would have been that artist. And then she tore her ACL. So, you know, he jokes me like somehow we've gotten it done with a whole bunch of warriors this year, but that he really does have, I think he spends a lot of time creating an environment, not just in terms of game time, but training and, and all this other kind of stuff where he allows players to put their stamp on the game. Like he wants to encourage creativity as much as he can still while, you know, being within the system. And then in terms of the environment that he's walking into, like, Maybe I'm maybe I'm being ridiculous here, but like this is a women's national team that has now won two World Cups in a row. When he, if and when mm-hmm. he kind of walks in first day to give his opening remarks to run his first session, is he going to be sort of welcomed? Do you think? Does he have that reputation and that relationship that people will yeah. be excited? Or because of what they've accomplished, is it more of a like, well, let's see what you come up with first? Yeah, I think actually it really does seem like every every time Julie Foudy has reported on the the coaching search, like she really made it clear that the players were were backing him more than anyone else. Um, so I mean, you have have players like Megan Rapinoe, Becky Sauerbrunn played with him at FC Kansas City. Like you have these leadership players that I think have vouched for him and understand the way that he operates as a head coach. So. You know, I, I think that obviously he's being handed a, a team in a way, you know, that Jill Ellis maybe wasn't when she came in. But at the same time, I think that, you know, looking at the next cycle, right, like he's coming in right before the Olympics, but looking ahead to 2023, I think the international landscape is going to change a lot. And, you know, it was even changing a lot under Jill Ellis. But, you know, I think he's having that defensive mindset is going to be a positive thing. Mm-hmm for the national team because like, yes, Joe Ellis had the failure in the Olympics and like realized, okay, we have to be able to break down a low block. But I think the U S national team is going to have to start adding some more like defensive first tools to their toolkit, just because as Europe really starts to catch up, I think that there are going to be more elements of the game that the team has not necessarily needed to focus on in the past. Hmm. That's really interesting. Like, are there are there players that you think uh, in NWSL or elsewhere are most likely to rise to that occasion if he needs more versatile defenders or a different type of defender? Or do you think we'll stick with kind of what we have, what we've had recently, and then there'll be some new players integrated? Yeah, I mean, I guess the question number one is like, would Crystal Dunn continue yeah, being true. starting left back? Right. Good like, call. Um, <laughs> I forgot about so, that. I mean, I think it's. Yeah. Like, would he want to say like, oh, Crystal Dunn is an artist, right? That we could build this national team around. Because in theory, I think she does have that talent where you could put her in a number 10 role or put it back in the midfield. Like, obviously we have options there. You know, like that was half of the problem of this World Cup is we already have too many midfield options. But, you know, does Crystal Dunn make the most sense as left back under Vlako and Donofsky? I don't really know the answer to that yet. Simply because, you know, I think he's going to, I don't think he's going to blow the entire team up or anything by the time the 2020 Olympics roll around. Like, I think that there are a couple of key questions that he's going to have to tackle. I think Carly Lloyd is, is number one. You anticipated my question. Kind of Nicely done. Yeah. So, like, he is going to have some things to address right off the bat. I do think Crystal Dunn might be one of those in the long run. Do I think it might happen for the 2020 Olympics? Not entirely sure. That is like he he does have some options. I mean, Casey Short, now a Defender of the Year candidate um, in NWSL, missed out on this World Cup roster. Like she is obviously in the national team player pool. I think that you could pretty easily pull her into the Olympic roster if you wanted to. So. Uh, if you had to, like, uh, because Carly Lloyd, uh, she she went on Julie Fowdy's podcast this week. I don't really want to get into necessarily some of her comments because, eh, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do want to g- get to is she mentioned that she fully expects to play in the Olympics, and it sounds like she does not expect to sit on the bench in the Olympics. How likely do you think it is that we see her playing meaningful minutes at the Olympics next summer? I, it's a really tough call. Like, I the the. I think some of the frustration with those comments is like, okay, yes, the form is good. And like, she's been like ripping teams apart 
in NWSL, right? Like, I, I think it's hard to argue with some of her form comments. The part that is a struggle is that it is a team sport. There is, a, a, you know, not just a science to roster building, but also something of an art. And, you know, I think the forward line that Jill Ellis ran with of Morgan, Rapino, and Heath was always pretty well locked and was, I think, not necessarily just a chemistry thing, but, you know, I think it made sense within her system. So, I, you know, I think that it's still probably really going to be a struggle for her to break through into that starting lineup just because those three players each bring a certain skill set in a way that complements the starting 11. I, I think that we do kind of have to see at least a few games under Indonofsky to, like, actually be able to answer this question. But, I mean, the Olympic roster is smaller. And I think that it's a lot harder to crack. And I, I do think that it might be a tough decision, but, you know, right now, I think it's, I think she might be on the outside looking in, but again, like it, it really does. We just have to get a sense of, especially if, you know, if Andonofsky is the guy, how he's going to approach her in terms of, you know, managing the emotions of the situation as well. So there's a lot of moving pieces to it beyond just like, does Carly Lloyd deserve a spot? based on form because there are other elements to it like i've watched miracle a lot you know like who do you play for like that's the kind of thing that i'm (laughs) thinking about when i'm when i'm thinking about an olympics roster that that makes that makes sense to me so i guess we can sort of revisit this uh down the road once there's a coach when there's a coach we'll see what happens there for now we should probably turn our attention to the playoffs which as i said start this weekend you've got the north carolina courage hosting the seattle rain chicago red stars hosting the portland thorns both of those games on sunday the winners advance into the final and carry north carolina on the 27th uh you mentioned that there's like like constructing a roster is an art form and i want to start there mm-hmm. with north carolina they employ Dabinia. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Abby Dahlkemper, Jess McDonald, Crystal Dunn, Sam Mewis, just to name a few. How have they been able to build and maintain such a strong roster? That, that is a million-dollar question about North Carolina Courage. I mean, their whole deal, right, is Paul Riley convincing the team that they're underdogs. And there is a kernel of truth at the center of it, because when this team, in some version of itself, formed back when they were in Western New York, making their way into the 2016 playoffs and then championship and then winning, right? Lynn Williams, Kansas, all these, these younger versions of the, these players were a part of that team. And they were underdogs in 2016. And they've now carried it forward in addition to moving to North Carolina and then going on like essentially this like three season run of just being like completely insanely talented. But, you know, I think that, Paul Riley has done a really good job, A, in terms of, like, inheriting the core of the team from Western New York. The 2015 draft was, like, intensely successful for Western New York. But then you also have, I mean, that same draft, they picked up Kristen Hamilton with the very last pick. And now she's an MVP candidate in 2019. And I don't think that that's necessarily, like, an end result that we would have seen from the 2015 draft, that the final pick was going to become uh, an MVP candidate like a full four seasons later. Like that's usually not how this league necessarily works. Yeah, not so much. That makes sense. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's just, there's there's depth, but there's also just this core belief of this team that everyone has bought into in terms of the work ethic and still believing that they're underdogs. Like there is a part of it that is roster building, but then there is a mentality in in North Carolina that almost borders on like cult like. <laughs> so, and I mean that in like the most affectionate possible way. But they they really are such a unit when it comes to believing the work, and you know, like they had this motto of no finish line, and and I mean. I just remember talking to any, like every North Carolina player and the way that they talked about the team and the work that they do, like everybody was on this like higher plane of existence that I do not usually see even across other end of the NWSL teams. Um, and then they, as, like, as is kind of always the case with teams that make runs that have strong seasons, you've got to kind of fill gaps when they appear. Uh, a player who is, seems to have been instrumental in that is Heather O'Reilly, who's been thrust into an unexpected mm-hmm. starting role. Uh, yeah. How surprised have you been by her performance and how big of a role do you think she plays this weekend? 
I mean, I think she, she has to, um, I mean, I don't think like everybody is kind of, I think, assuming the end result of this North Carolina Reina FC game, but also Reina FC have been successful in like despite themselves this season. And I don't think that they can be overlooked because I think that there is something more to this coaching battle as well. I'm not surprised by Heather O'Reilly being ready to go and being like thrust into a defender role, even though that's not really what we know her as in terms of her, her overall career, but along the way, being able to like serve balls in, I mean, I talked to her earlier this season and she's just like, I'm still me. Like I'm still like trying to outrun people in practice, even though I really don't need to, but that's just, like, if I'm there, I'm going to be giving it 110%. That's just how I'm built. So I'm not shocked that she was ready, even though I'm sure she was not expecting at all to be the team starting outside back for the yeah, playoffs. Pro- probably not. Probably not. <laughs> so, but that's also like, that's Heather O'Reilly. That's, I mean, that's Heather O'Reilly. Like, she is built in a way that I, I like, cannot wrap my head around. And I have covered her for a really long time. I mean, she's probably, like, one of my all-time favorite players. So... It does not surprise me at all that she's going to now somehow play another key role in an NWSL postseason, especially after the ones that she's she's already had in this week. And in terms of this game, uh, for both teams, what are you expecting in terms of like how they will try to approach this one? And who should people be keeping an eye on, aside from some of the names we've already mentioned? Yeah, I mean, so I, I tried to get some info out of Blacko because the last time he played uh, North Carolina in North Carolina, he rolled out this five four one against them to try to basically slow them down, and it did kind of work. Lynn Williams scored uh, a game winning goal in the eighty second minute, like he got pretty close. And I was like, "So, are you thinking about you know using a tool like that to try to just jam them up on the wings?" And he was like, "I'm not going to get into it, but I will say like we're going to have players that we didn't have in that game." And Megan Rapinoe is like number one among them, but. I think he's going to lean on someone like Darian Jenkins a little bit more. So she's another player to watch for them. And um, on the North Carolina side, I mean, it's not that they don't have tactics, but they just, <laughs> like, I think you kind of know what you're going to get with North Carolina, right? Like, it's just nonstop offensive, like, just attacking and, and pressing, and that's, that's their game. And so, you know, I think Jess McDonald has been in really good form, just one player of the week for the final week of the regular season. and. Um, but I, I do think Dabina is really a key player for them. She's she's definitely, I think, come into her, her own a little bit more. She's gotten some confidence, I think, with her performance for Brazil uh, post-World Cup. So I also just personally, like, I could watch Dabina play on a loop for, like, a number of hours. So I, I just really take a lot of delight in actually getting a chance to watch her in big moments. Um, and then we we assume we will get an opportunity to watch Megan Rapinoe. She's back off of winning the FIFA Best Women's Player of the Year award. Uh, no small honor there. Uh, when she comes into this Seattle team, like my assumption is that they go from like if she's not there, they're at like fifty percent capacity, and then she pushes them up to a hundred. Like, does she have that massive of a role with this Seattle team? And and to the extent that like if the Courage are able to shut her down, then do they basically effectively shut down the Rain or Rain FC as well? I think if you shut down Megan Rapinoe, first of all, if you're giving up like free kicks, then you're not shutting down Megan Rapinoe. So that's mm-hmm. like number one is they have to try to not give up free kicks. But, um, you know, there are other offensive weapons for the rain. I mean, they have a rookie of the year candidate in Bethany Balter. And I mean, her story is kind of crazy. If you don't know it, I mean, she's coming from uh, an AIA school, like first player to ever get signed out of there you know, goes to preseason camp as a non-roster invite and then ends up being their leading goal scorer of the year. And she has come up clutch in some pretty big moments. So they they have her, they have Beverly Yanez. Like they do have some options in terms of people who can score goals. Jody Taylor has also been in pretty good form uh, lately for the rain. So, you know, shutting down Megan Rapino, I think is probably going to be a pretty key area for North Carolina courage, but that doesn't mean that you've like, solve the problem of right now by any stretch. Uh, my final question about this game uh, was going to ask you to explain uh, Bethany Balser for people who are unfamiliar. You have just done that. Thank you. So instead, <laughs> let's move to uh, sh- uh, the Red Stars, the the Thorns. Uh, Chicago have made the NWSL semifinals five straight times, this being their fifth. They've lost the previous four. Will they be able to get the job done against Portland? And if they're going to, what will they need to do? 
So actually, Seth Young just wrote the best guide to what the Chicago Red Stars need to do in order to shut down Portland. Um, part of their issues earlier this year have been fitness related. So first of all, the, the storyline, I think, of this game is that Chicago's coming in on a nice five win streak and Portland is doing the opposite of that. So you have two teams that are kind of coming at this from different angles. Um, I talked to Christine Sinclair for a long time, actually, yesterday, and she was just like, we're not panicking. We're creating chances. We're just waiting on the goals to come against Chicago. And I was like, okay, sure. Um, so you, you've got kind of two different teams coming in in, in different forms. But, you know, I think that Chicago does have a, a slight advantage. A, they've got nice home field advantage. And, and B, they had a bye week, the final uh, weekend of regular season action. So they, they got some nice, like, you know, Rory Danes talked on his conference call for a long time about managing minutes and, and building up players that needed some more minutes ahead of the semifinal. So he's had a long time to plan to get everyone in like peak form for this game. Whereas Portland had to wait for the final day of the regular season to find out where they, they were even playing. Does that um, does that flip around at all? Because yeah, as you said, Chicago haven't played since I believe September twenty eighth. Uh, is can you mm-hmm. flip that around and say like that's a long time to not play? Like, could things have gotten rusty, or is that not really their style? I don't think. That, I think it is actually going to benefit from them because the the losses that they have had, they've always looked like it's just because people are tired. So I think it's actually probably beneficial for them to like get a week off and get to watch some other teams. Like, yeah, there was the, the international break followed by having that bye week. But I think in the long run, it's probably going to benefit them just because it's actually getting people probably in a space where they're, like, sleeping well. And I, I think that, you know, there was a story from training where they basically had to, like, make sure that Julie Ertz didn't come to practice because if she came to practice, she wasn't capable of just sitting there watching it. She would have practiced. So that sounds about I think right. Probably for yeah, for the Red Stars, it's probably a good thing that they've gotten some time off and can kind of get the game plan and and get the legs back under them because that's when they have looked like they're struggling a little bit is when they've got you know midweek games or people are traveling for international stuff. That's that's where they struggled. Whereas I think Portland's situation is a little bit different because they've never, you know, this was another thing that that Sinclair was telling me is that they've had so many people going in and out, even from, from preseason on is that they've, they've never actually found their team identity this year. So they've got kind of their own bigger picture problems and Chicago's got their own kind of stuff. And in terms of like the history of these two teams too, is really interesting because the red stars have not beaten Portland since 2013. So there is some historical stuff here, not just the red stars making it to the playoffs, so many seasons in a row and never being able to make it to the championship. Like there's actual history within these two teams as well. When you say they haven't beaten them since 2013, do you mean in the playoffs or do you mean uh, at all? Uh, I, I'm sorry. They haven't beaten the Portland at home. I want to say I actually have, like I have my little notebook has all the, the things, but like they, their record against Portland is, is miserable. They definitely have not beaten them this year. It was a, uh, Four four. That game in the, the start of the year was absolutely nuts, and then it's two losses. Wow! So this year alone, they definitely have not beaten them. But this is still a Portland team that lost six nil to the Courage. I think it was. Was that an <laughs> yep. outlier? Yep. Was that just like because I forget what the specifics were? I don't know if that was like happened to be in one of the breaks when like the U.S. players were gone. Uh, but I'm wondering if that was an outlier or if that speaks to a vulnerability in the Thorns. They so Sinclair just said it was. Sinclair was like straight up this is an outlier but having watched that game the players just looked off like they looked like they were not trying at all and Sinclair told me like it wasn't a coaching thing it wasn't that they didn't try to prep us for that game like it was a player thing and they had a meeting and then they did win that next game against um, the Houston Dash one nothing but that's been their only goal of the last five games so they have been kind of struggling a bit but I, I do think that their struggles are in a different mode than just that, that six, nothing game was like way worse than anything else generally is shaping up for Portland. So, and they, they definitely looked better in their regular season finish against Washington spirit. They didn't score, but they were, as Sink was saying, creating chances. So, you know, I think it was definitely a better note to end the season on. And 
I, they're not over that six nothing loss. <laughs> I can tell you that, but I do think that it was kind of just a weird, fluky game where like no one looked interested in actually playing. Yeah, they, I'm assuming they'll be up for the playoffs. I'm, I'm guessing they'll be into it. Uh, if they are, yeah. they're going to have to deal with Sam Kerr. She's obviously key to Chicago's attack. How can Portland sort of limit her effectiveness? Are there ways to game plan Sam Kerr? And if Portland successfully do that, what do you think Chicago's sort of plan B might be? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is kind of hard to game plan for Sam Kerr. I know, um, actually, Kelly O'Hara did some preview work on the uh, postseason for men and blazers and she was just saying like you have to have such a spatial awareness because she's actually more dangerous off the ball hmm. for the most part um if she's on someone's back shoulder like having an awareness of where she is and i think you know emily mengus um is probably going to be a key player to watch i would assume in terms of trying to keep her in sights at all times um that is one of the struggles for chicago is that obviously she scored so many goals um, even with the World Cup and, and missing stuff for international appearances, that she is the team's leading scorer, and they haven't necessarily gotten other players to step up the way that the scoring has spread for other top teams. But, you know, I think Yuki Nagasato is such a key player for Chicago, and not just because of her relationship to Sam Kerr and the way that they play together, but she is capable of scoring goals on her own. And I think that she she can own the midfield a little bit, um, you know, that's going to be a player, I think, that needs to step up and have a big game. Obviously, you know, they have Julie Ertz to help win balls and, and all that kind of good stuff that Julie Ertz can do for a team. But, you know, they do still have that issue of Sam Kerr is number one goal scoring producer. And if she is limited, who's going to step up? And I mean, we've even seen Casey Short score a couple important goals this year. So, you know, there are players that can do it and they can come from unlikely sources, but I think that's definitely a thing to watch for Chicago. And if uh, I'm assuming that you're going to be covering uh, the final on the 27th in North Carolina, mm-hmm. is your, if you had to make a guess, would your expectation be that you will be covering a final that features the home team courage playing the Red Stars? I think that's where I'm leaning right at the moment. Um, I, I definitely think I have Chicago taking the the semifinal over Portland. That, that's my guess for that one. I think the home field advantage and the, the additional rest time is probably going to play out in their favor. Um, I think that North Carolina rain could be closer than we think, just because sometimes North Carolina does get into these situations where even if they're like throwing a million shots up on goal, just things aren't happening for them. Um, one of the players I think that could prove really helpful for the rain is Casey Short. Uh, Casey Short, sorry, Casey Murphy, um, their goalkeeper who, you know, was kind of the third goalkeeper in the mix until Michelle Betos and then Lydia Williams both got hurt. Um, Definitely young, like up and coming, could be in the national team pool by the time 2023 rolls around. So and she's had some big saves and she's also had a couple moments where she's looked a little, a little iffy. Um, so if she has like a crazy game though, like it might really change the tone of the game in North Carolina. So. I'm hoping that one is is close. Um, But, you know, I think right at the moment, it is probably looking like we might actually get a North Carolina-Chicago championship, which, I mean, it it would definitely be something new just because we we keep getting the uh, North (laughs) Carolina-Portland championships every year. Yeah, a, a, like a little fluctuation. That That's a good thing. Um, maybe less of a good <laughs> yeah. thing as is tradition. I've taken up more of your time uh, than I meant to. Uh, but as always, you have so many interesting things to say and bring up so many interesting topics that then I want to keep talking. And here we are. So uh, I know you've got a, a very busy couple of weeks coming up. I will not take up any more of your time other than to say, uh, Meg, thank you very much. And for people who want to read more from you, hear from more, more from you, how can they do so? Yeah, so probably the easiest way to find articles is just come to Twitter. I'm at it's Meg Linehan, L-I-N-E-H-A-N. But all my stuff is on The Athletic. And I think if you actually just go to like theathletic.com slash NWSL, that's where all of our playoff coverage is living right at the moment. We've had six articles go up this week. We'll have more next week. Uh, myself and Steph Young will be writing from North Carolina for the championship. So we're going all out. There we go. Um, And uh, you mentioned that piece by Steph. I'll try to include that in the show notes so people can read about how to shut down Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's there, then I remembered. And if not, then I apologize. But once again, Meg, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you.
Thank you very much one more time to Meg Linehan for taking all the time to talk to me about the U.S. Women's National Team as well as the NWSL playoffs. Up next, I'm going to be talking to Jason Weintraub of the League One Fun podcast. Uh, He's been doing that all season covering League One. The USL League One championship is this weekend. So Jason talks a little bit about how the two teams who will be contesting that got there as well as explaining the situation with Lansing Ignite who are, it seems, on the verge of folding. Jason will explain what the deal is, why it's happening, what can be done, lots of uh, who, why's, and what's being answered there. Uh, Before we get to Jason, I did want to take a moment to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Roughneck Scarves, our longest continually operating sponsor, if not our longest outright sponsor. Uh, Roughneckscarves.com, spelled R-U-F-F-N-E-C-K, scarves.com, is the official scarf provider for U.S. soccer, for Major League Soccer, for the NCAA, and for the USL. Uh, For U.S. soccer, they've got men's and women's, scarves. So if you're feeling very kind of defeated about the U.S. men's national team, you can check out their U.S. women's national team offerings. Uh, So you can maybe be on board before a coach is appointed. You can be on board before we have to deal with all of the drama of roster building in advance of the Olympics. Uh, Instead, you can get scarves for players who you know will safely be there, or at least we could expect would safely be there. So maybe a Julie Ertz scarf. They've got two different options for you. They've got a Crystal Dunn scarf. We don't know if she'll be a fullback, but we do feel fairly confident that she'll be in that Olympic team. So you've got many different options for both the men's and women's side, but obviously uh, MLS teams covered in there, USL championship teams at least covered in there, as well as every international team you could possibly want to support. So if you found somebody over this international break, you're now into them, you want to know more about them, you want to support them somehow, you can get that scarf and you can get 20% off any scarf aside from their custom options. They do have the custom scarf option. You cannot get 20% off there but everything else you can get 20% off with the promo code total soccer show that's all one word all together at roughneckscarves.com when you check out use the promo code total soccer show for 20% off a link to roughneck scarves will be in the show notes uh so again if it's not there that's on me because i forgot but hopefully it is uh so thank you one more time to roughneck scarves for sponsoring today's episode now over to me talking to jason weintraub of the usl league one fun podcast about the playoffs and about what's happening in Lansing. Jason, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, first off, I wanted to ask you a bit about League One Fun. Uh, we had Ira on the Top Drawer Soccer Show episode when we talked about young players in League One. Uh, but maybe some TSS listeners haven't heard about it or haven't maybe paid as much attention to League One. So can you tell us a bit about the podcast and sort of what you all do and why you wanted to do it in the first place? Sure. So me and Ira host it. Ira's the brains. I am, of course, the beauty. And we pretty much go over, yeah, (laughs) we pretty much go over the whole league. Uh, We review the games, talk about any news going on in USL, specifically the League One. Uh, Sometimes we'll get some championship in League Two news in there. Uh, We we pretty much highlight players who stuck, you know, who stuck out. We do in-depth analysis for each game. Um, You know, with 10 teams, you know, five games per week, we're usually able to kind of spend 10 minutes per game and really go in depth. Uh, And then we answer listener questions. And what we're really trying to do is just promote the players, the fans, the experience of League One. Uh, show the quality of it, talk about um, players who might, you know, catch the eye of United States Youth National Team. Uh, international people who you know want to look at players especially when you talk about north texas or you talk about players you know in south georgia tormenta like connor antley and uh players like nick moon who haven't been on the radar for some but you could be seeing very well in usl championship next year uh ford madison for instance has christian diaz who is actually training with minnesota united right now before their playoff game uh, as a potential depth starter so all right. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, that, the show itself, but then I also wanted to talk USL League One Championship, which is this weekend, and then a little bit, maybe a lot bit, about Lansing Ignite. But let's <laughs> start with the championship. Let's start on a more optimistic note. Um, it is, I believe, this Saturday, October 19th, 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time. Uh, North Texas hosting the Greenville Triumph. Uh, Greenville getting here by upsetting uh, Lansing Ignite. North Texas getting past Ford Madison 2-0. What are you expecting from this final? Yeah, you know, this is you, you draw it up the way you draw up a championship. You've got the best offense in the league going up against the best defense in the league. And so for those who don't know, North Texas, uh, pretty much the two team of uh, SC Dallas, and they have been hands down the best passing team in the league. And it's absolutely insane to watch their passing. And it doesn't matter who's on the field. There's been a lot of rotation 
for North Texas all year, and they've dominated no matter who they're putting in there. Uh, and just to give you an idea, right now they have a stat that I found. It's 78% of the team is passing, or I'm sorry, there's 17 players on the team that is passing with a 78% accuracy or higher over 300 passes. That'll work. 17. So it does it has it does not matter who you're plugging in there. I might be plugging in there and passing that 82%, who knows. But uh that's what, you know, that's what they've done. They've got the league MVP at least in my opinion in Arturo Rodriguez, easily a player that you can plug into MLS right now and he would be fine. Leads the league in duels won, duels overall, the assist champion, the most chances created by 25 more than anybody else. He's just someone both side of the ball who's just absolutely brilliant when he plays um and so that's going to be a big factor with greenville because when we talk about greenville uh they have the most organized and hands down the best defense in the league led the league in clean sheets with 13 uh have you know the the least amount of goals conceded they're just easily you know the best defensive team and you know coach john harks has done an amazing job at organizing them they've got the golden glove winner and uh, Dallas J, who is a Guam national player, and you know it's going to be it's going to be a battle because you've got you know North Texas who likes to pass the ball and build up, and you've got Greenville who likes to keep their form and then you know maybe counter on the side and try to steal one. Um, and so it's the Golden Glove versus the Golden Boot, you know, because we've got um, on the North Texas we got Ronaldo Damas, Haitian national team player who uh, was rumored to be going to the nation's league for Haiti and he played last week. So I don't know now if he's actually going or if they just allowed him to stay to play in that semifinal game and he'll, he'll be going this weekend. Uh, The other player I wanted to mention from North Texas or ask about from North Texas is Ricardo Pepe, who was with North Texas when they came to Richmond and destroyed them, uh, scored plenty of goals, then uh, got called up. It seemed like was going to be with FC Dallas. Now he's back with the team. Is that sort of to help them win the playoffs or is that to help him develop or maybe a combination of I think it's a combination because, you know, you had the international break. So FC Dallas really wasn't, you know, probably practicing or didn't have a game that weekend. So they didn't need him to practice as much. It's it was kind of surprising to see Pepe in the lineup as a starter, because up until that semifinal, I don't think Pepe had played with North Texas for a good two and a half months. Uh, he had been, you know, on the FC Dallas bench, made a couple appearances because FC Dallas doesn't really have too many attacking options coming off the bench. And so he's a very important role for them, especially when it comes to depth and injury. Um, but as you see in the semifinal, came in, scored mm-hmm. two goals. One, you know, he he went cross body shot and then the other was a header. So, like I said, he hasn't missed a step and you put anyone in that system they're going to score. So with him up top, yeah, I don't know. I know he got called up, and I know he's supposed to be going down for uh, the youth national team, but I think he's not leaving until Monday. I don't know what's going on, but you know, Greenville's going to have to be prepared for whoever they put up top because they're all these players are a hassle. Yeah, and regardless of who's there, we should expect uh, North Texas to attack, to maybe get some goals. It will depend on how well Greenville play, but that will be a very intriguing final. Now, like I kind of thought there was a decent chance that we would get one versus two. We would get North Texas versus Lansing Ignite. Instead, uh, Lansing lost at home to uh, the Greenville Triumph, 1-0, as I said earlier, and that uh, it sounds like may spell the end of the franchise. So that was the other thing I kind of wanted to talk about, which is a bit more negative. Their owner, I believe, I think the last quote I saw was him saying like he didn't want to talk about it until the final was finished. Uh, but uh, with that said, it does seem like uh, things are not uh, going particularly well in Lansing. No, it does not. And from everything I've heard, it seems that the team, you know, it's it's done. Uh, they are folding. There probably will be an announcement next week. Um, and of course, with this has come rumors and speculations and everything going on. Um, you know, and I, I've been talking to multiple sources this week, trying to get to the bottom of it. And if you want, I think I can kind of take you down uh, and give you some details of what I believe is going on. Yeah, that would be lovely. Let's do it. Yeah. So for for a quick background, uh, Lansing had a team in Lansing United played in NPSL. Uh, was ran by. Uh, Jeremy Sampson, and he did a great job with the branding, with the support. So when USL came, Jeremy Sampson uh, teamed up with uh, to run the, run the team as a general manager with the owner of the minor league baseball team in Lansing, Lansing Lugnuts. So the owner of the Lansing Lugnuts then takes on Lansing Ignite, and they play in the baseball stadium that the Lansing Lugnuts play in. So 
this is where the first issue kind of happens because you're bringing in a baseball guy, right? And so when the ownership, you know, he might not know much about soccer. Obviously, soccer and baseball are completely different. So the Lansing Lug Nuts happen, and the minor league baseball team takes off very well. They perform very well. They have good attendance. They spend money. Um, it was a very big success coming out of the gates. And I think that also contributes to higher expectations that may not be reachable in especially a soccer team's first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so another issue with this too is that the community plays a big part in this, right? So you take away your NPSL team that a lot of fans adored and were supporting. You put them Lansing Ignite, that's fine. But then it comes the city is paying for a bunch of this, right? So they're they're paying for up to $150,000 in purchase equipment. They're paying for a lot of the conversions when it goes from a baseball to a soccer field, which costs anywhere between, you know, 12 and 25,000, right? Depending on how much uh, how much time it takes, how many people you have working. And so, you know, the um, a lot of people are a little iffy about this and so I think, you know, when you looked at it, though, the fans came out. They had a great supporters uh, group in the assembly line. Um, you know, they were third in the attendance through the league. So it wasn't that the support wasn't there. But I think what the disconnect was, was with the baseball team having such success and, you know, um, their owner uh, being a baseball guy. I don't think he was patient. I think he had too high of expectations. And I think because of the loss that he took in the first year, you know, Tom Dixon just didn't want to wait for it, right? He did, he already had to pay millions in franchising fees and the travel and the salary. And I think that, you know, for him, he didn't want to look at this as a long-term thing. He wanted results out the gate, but they were just unrealistic results, you know, it, and it didn't make sense for him to, I think he even said, if you go back and look at the Lansing Pulse interview uh, that they did when they first, you know, announced the team, he was expecting 70,000 people per year to come out, which is a wildly high expectation for a brand new team. And just to give you a comparison for that. He expected 70,000 70,000. And to give you a comparison, Ford Madison, Mm -hmm. who is the darling of the league, had 800 more people come per game than any other team in the league. They barely hit Mm 60,000. And 60,000 is not a low number by any – I mean it's the 18th most in all USL teams, and that includes championship. Mm -hmm. So for for him to expect seventy thousand out the gate was just wildly, you know, weird and a, just a, a just an expectation that wasn't going to hit. And then I think between that and then you have, you know, these expenses that he's playing. You know, it's just I think with him, he didn't think about this long term, wanted just something to come out the gates and have success like the baseball team. And, you know, this is this is what happens when you take a chance of getting owners who are baseball guys or, you know, owners who are not really into the soccer culture or really for the love of the game. Right. You have owners who are trying to make a quick buck. And if they can't, they're going to pull out. Why do you think people would look at a USL League One team? And I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but it's a genuine question. Like, why would a person look at that and think, like, yep, that's the cash cow. That's how I'm going to get an immediate return on my money. Because by all accounts, you kind of got to expect that you're going to lose money for at least a couple years, if not several years, if not many years, before maybe you eventually turn a profit. So here's the here's where the conspiracies uh, come in. So All if you right. want to put on your tinfoil <laughs> hat, do it. let's go ahead and uh, do it together. <laughs> so one conspiracy is that because of the deal that he had with the stadium, with the Lansing Lugnuts, by him having this deal, it was an incentive for him to get a better deal by having the Ignite and the Lugnuts play in the stadium together. Mm. So he's saving cost of money while earning a profit on the soccer team, right? So that's one. And then when he realized that, the finances didn't balance it, you know, it wasn't worth it to him. So that's one conspiracy. Another conspiracy is when Lansing at Night was announced at the same time there was a Beer City Football Club trademarked. And the rumor is that uh, Dixon actually wanted to play in USL Championship, hmm. and he wanted that to be in Grand Rapids, which is about an hour away from Lansing. Um, and so you know, you hear rumors. I've been talking to people, and what they're saying is there's a possibility the league told him he needed to prove himself and start in Lansing, and then could potentially launch, uh, you know, the Grand Rapids Football Club. You know, which or there is already a Grand Rapids Football Club. I should first and foremost say that. So if that was his intentions, it's kind of a move. But uh, you know, so I think the intentions of that was 
you know, you prove yourself in Lansing and then possibly then you launch it in Grand Rapids and then Lansing becomes that League One feeder club for your USL championship club. And so I think because of, you know, when you saw the the profits or the, the lack of profits and saw that it was going to be a uphill battle for him, he decided not to. Um, you know, in another, you know, this is this was a conspiracy, and I've I've heard a couple of people say this. I've heard that this was kind of discussed with the supporters group of Lansing United before Lansing Ignite even was announced, and so, you know, that's one of the big conspiracies. And now you have the people in Grand Rapids FC who, you know, they're not doing well, right? And I don't know how much they're going to last longer. NPSL in general is having teams, you know, falling apart. And so, you know, there's there's a possibility that Dixon will try to go for that Beer City Football Club now. And so my plea for USL is, no, tell him, don't tell him there ain't no way. He's not going to do it. He's already tarnished, you know, uh, the reputation of League One. He doesn't need to do the same for championship. Yeah, and let's talk about League One for a minute because uh, it's worth noting this is a Lansing team that finished third in attendance. Like, yes. there may be that, inc- like, I think I had that idea, like, oh, they must have really, really been struggling. In reality, they finished third behind Ford Madison, who you mentioned were sort of the darlings of the league and got a lot of coverage, and then the Richmond Kickers, who are an established team, very much established, who dropped down a division, who are always going to have decent attendance. So third for an expansion franchise in the third division of American soccer is not unimpressive. I, I would say, if anything, they had a solid fan base they had the capital combustion podcast obviously it's signs that people were interested people wanted them to succeed um but i think also people have then sort of looked at this as a sign of like well is this potentially a sign of the instability of usl league one and i I personally feel like that's maybe a bit unfair this does seem like it's sort of an outlier within an individual owner making strange slash uh poor decisions but i'm wondering does this in your mind reflect poorly on the league so I don't think it reflects poorly on the league as far as how the league is doing. I think, like you mentioned, there are plenty of independent teams, you know, Greenville, Ford, and Richmond that are doing well in attendance, who are doing well. You know, you even look at Lansing, I would say had probably the most or second most entertaining product on the field, right? I think, you know, with Jeremy Sampson as a general manager, bringing Coach Nate Miller from Lansing United, bringing a couple of those players over, right? You brought those fans. You brought that chemistry. They were an exciting team. They played an exciting style. You know, they were a team to where even people who are fans of specific teams in League One, if they're going to watch another game, that that was the game to watch because you knew you were going to have an exciting game and see an exciting style. And so, no, I think this is a thousand percent on the owner. And I think if anything, the only thing this tarnishes with USL or at least gives a idea of what you USL is doing wrong is they need to do a better job at vetting these owners, right? You can't have baseball guys come in and saying they're going to expect 70000 per year or, you know, expect the city to pay for everything and him to pay for all these conversions and not, you know, make a profit the first year. He needs to understand that that's how the system works. I, you know, there's probably teams in MLS, which is the highest tier of soccer we have in this country, who are still not turning a profit after five or six years, right? So that's just how it is. And so I'm hoping with this, if there's a lesson learned, that USL just does a better job at vetting these owners and making sure that they're not in for a cash grab, that they do care about the game, and this is going to be a long-term thing for them. Because, yeah, expecting that kind of money, that kind of profit in the first year, it's, it's just not... It's not it's not functional. It's not going to happen. And would you like like this is kind of a, a broad question, I know. But are there things that you would like specifically like to see? Do you want to see a like financial check to make sure they have the backing to be able to afford it? Do you want them to sign a, a letter of commitment that we will definitely operate for five years? Like what do you think would be a solid step uh, on USL's part? Yeah, because I don't even think I don't even think the amount of money that the owner has matters, right? Like, like I like he's if this is just one of his projects and he thinks he can get some quick cash from this, or if this is something that helps alleviate, you know, the the pressure or has him leveraging another deal because of the the baseball stadium, then then that doesn't matter anymore, right? So I think what does matter are people's commitment to longevity, right? Maybe having them sign a contract for three years and even just having owners who you know have that knowledge and have that passion for the game, right? You look at, for instance, Asheville uh, today, 
announced that they're going to league two and the owner's first statement was you know we're, we're we have an academy we have this supportive fan group we're aiming for league one right that was always been what we've wanted since day one so when you have owners making the steps and making the appropriate steps and saying that in a press release to let you know how passionate they are and how much they want to bring how much they want to grow the community grow the product of soccer in that city that's the kind of owners we should be looking for i think that's what matters i don't think the amount of money matters obviously it matters enough to where they need to be reliable to they're going to be able to run but i I, i'll take that over someone who is worth 300 million or a billion dollars any day of the week I think that's probably a fair argument. Well said. Uh, my <laughs> final question for you. So the finals this weekend, what happens next for League One fun? Are you all going to take some time off and then, or like do some individual player stuff, some team spotlights, and then get back uh, to it next season? Uh, we're, we're the hardest working men in the business. There we There's go. no days off for us. So, uh, yeah, I think what we're going to do, we'll definitely recap um, USL League One, put out their best. Uh, 11 today which uh we'll definitely be you know commenting on and sending ours in instead so we'll be doing that and then i think what we're going to be doing is doing a bunch of interviews uh with coaches players talking about the first year you're going to see a, a good amount of players probably moving to usl championship so being able to talk to them about that uh talking to you know some of the new clubs that are coming in you know we have omaha that's coming in that's you know gathering a lot of excitement already has one of the best crest you know probably in, in north america in my opinion um so i think we'll have a lot to talk about in this off season all right and if people want to hear more from you or read more from you how can they find you yeah, you can uh, catch me on Twitter at Home Sweet Soccer. I do articles for the USL League One website, and I'm also on the BGN network, um, and that's where we host our they host our League One Fun podcast. And uh, yeah, if you want to listen to the podcast, it's League the Number One and Fun. You can follow us on Twitter, and you can catch us at pretty much anywhere a podcast plays. All right, Jason. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to preview the final, to talk Lansing Ignite, and uh, put on your tinfoil hat with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.